Today's podcast is brought to you by Horizons Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation ETF, which trades on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the ticker symbol HRAA and is sub-advised by Resolve Asset Management. HRAA is an alternative fund whose investment objective is to seek long-term capital appreciation by investing directly or indirectly in major global asset classes, including, but not limited to, equity indices, fixed income indices, interest rates, commodities, and currencies. HRAA gains exposure to these asset classes by investing in derivative instruments that may include future contracts and forward agreements and securities. HRAA will take long or short positions, using up to a maximum of three times leverage in asset classes such as equity indices and fixed income asset classes, commodities, currencies, volatility indices, and other alternative asset classes. HRAA could provide balance to your portfolio by harnessing three unique investment styles. The first is an actively managed global risk parity portfolio to provide maximally diversified global exposure in optimal risk balance. The second is a proprietary systematic global macro process that attempts to profit from short-term market moves, going both long and short on more than 50 global markets. Finally, HRAA uses a dynamic tail protection overlay that attempts to profit from large moves in volatility markets. To learn more about this, please visit www.horizonsetfs.com HRAA to read about the ETF's investment objectives and important disclaimers about the risks associated with an investment in the ETF. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Good morning. Happy Friday. Morning, all. Good evening, all, from my point of view. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, mm-hmm. So we should probably do our disclaimer. Rodrigo, do you want to go ahead? Oh, me. That? Okay. Well, uh, just to make sure that everybody understands that this is not investment advice. It's purely for informational and entertainment purposes only. Do not take advice from any of these scallywags here. Go to your financial Absolutely and, not. Uh, take yeah. take their advice. Maybe bounce some ideas off them. With that, um, uh, Adam, Richard, I know... Adam, you've been a fan for more than a decade. Many, so many why don't you start yeah, out? Yeah. Well, I mean, Steve, your career has um, gone through several stages over the last decade, right? So, actually, it Absolutely. might be helpful for you to, to for you to sort of characterize your career for us to set the stage. Okay. Well, I probably I'll go back fifty years because I began. I did a degree, an arts and law degree at university, which gave me the choice of economics, which is what I wanted to major in with anything else I wish to choose. I did mathematics and psychology as well. And right in first year, I was exposed to an intellectual hole in mainstream economics. From that point on, I flipped from being a fan of economic theory of capitalism uh, to realising it doesn't describe capitalism at all. It's actually a catastrophe. Uh, and I've been fighting that, that, that idea of economics ever since. And uh, much just that normally puts you on the outside. I managed to end up being a professor and head of school at Kingston University in London. Um, uh, and that was largely a result of being a contrarian. So I published a book called Debunking Economics back in 2001, a sequel uh, in 2011. And then Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis in 2017? And I've just finished a new book, which will be coming out in October, I believe, in um, 
Europe and December in the US called uh, the New Economics the Manifesto. And what that does is explain what I can fundamentally call a non-equilibrium monetary uh, biophysical approach to economics. And that's in, in contrast to the barter world equilibrium vision that neoclassicals have. Uh, and, and that's what we call neoliberal economics. And to me, if anything's going to destroy capitalism, it's going to be neoclassical economics. Well, okay. So wow. there's a lot to unpack there. There's a lot of syllables to, yeah. um, <laughs> Sorry to unpack. That. So, I no, love no, that that's, that's how we're going to start. All right. I'm pulling any exactly. punches today. Um, <laughs> so why don't you, if you don't mind, give us um, a, a general explanation of what characterizes contemporary economic canon yep. and then why you think there's a gaping hole in the middle of that that's going to suck mm. us all in and then mm -hmm. um how you might view an alternative theory <clears throat> well if you want if you the origins of what we call economics today go back to the 1870s and before then you had what was called the classical school of economics which was stuff from adam smith david ricardo and, and boo boo his his karl marx uh now on, in the hands of smith and ricardo classical theory was a uh, championed capitalism against effectively feudalism. And what Marx did was turn it to attack capitalism in favour of what he thought would be socialism. And at that point, the uh, intellectual backing for economics changed from being the Ricardo and Smith mob to people who, uh, uh, three particular characters matter, uh, uh, Sta William Stanley Jevons in the UK, uh, England, in uh, Menger um, um, in Austria, and Volras in France. And they all said capitalism is a system designed for the satisfaction of human wants. And they had a, a subjective theory that it's all about uh, capitalism lets us maximize our utility compared to what we would get if we had a, a, you know, a, a central distribution system or, or so on. And an essential part of their thinking was that capitalism achieves equilibrium. And they did that not because they believed it achieved equilibrium, but they, they realized mathematics of modeling non-equilibrium is just too hard. And they also left money out of it because, again, it was hard enough modeling trade, trying to model trade and monetary as well, just too difficult. Well, they were uh, practical choices about how to model the economy back in the 1870s, uh, which became points of religion in the 20th century. So rather than seeing equilibrium as a, a short-term crutch until we can develop dynamic analysis methods, which is what the 19th century forebears of neoclassical economics expected. In the 20th century, they said, oh, capitalism achieves equilibrium and capitalism is really a barter system. We can ignore its monetary stuff. So you have the dominant analysis of capitalism, presuming its main feature is, is achieving equilibrium and the believing that the monetary system doesn't matter. Now, what planet is that? Okay, it's not the one we're on. Uh, the strengths of capitalism are it's, it's how it copes with non-equilibrium, disequilibrium, um, change and vitality. And funnily enough, Marx said it best, uh, talking about the bourgeoisie, as he called them in the, in the communist revolution. He said previous dominant social classes are all about maintaining and not changing the social and political and economic structure. The bourgeoisie cannot exist without revolutionising. Uh, the system and everlasting uncertainty. This is one of his phrases. And that's beautiful and that's true and that's the strength of capitalism. Okay? Uh, it's, it's far better at everlasting uncertainty within the parameters of the planet that we had back when uh, you could describe it as uh, 
as as William Bormod did as, as cowboy capitalism when you've got the vast open spaces of the prairie rather than spaceship capitalism where we're crowded all together now. So what we have is a completely inappropriate model of capitalism, exalting it for equilibrium, which is not a feature of capitalism, talking about it being a barter system, which is not capitalism. That's the dominant way of thinking about the economy. Uh, but it's, it's one of these classic things which uh, I think it was mentioned, the, the American humorist mentioned, put it best, he said, to every human problem, there is a solution that is neat, plausible and wrong. And that is fundamentally mainstream economics. Uh, and they've, in numerous times, they've proved their own logic wrong. And their excuse is to say, hey, let's make a simplifying assumption and hop over this problem. And at the superficial level, if you don't go down and examine the, the, the substructure, well, it's the foundations itself, it can look quite persuasive, supply and demand diagrams, um, utility maximising models and stuff like that. When you go and look at the foundations, they're all rotten. And therefore, when they make a simplifying assumption, it's an absurd simplifying assumption. Like, for example, and I'm not joking, this is Paul Samuelson, let's assume there's a centralised authority that redistributes income before trade takes place. And that's part of the model of capitalism. 1956, Paul Samuelson, taught these days in the main textbook. So what people think is an explanation for capitalism, if you sit outside the economic theory, is a complete distortion of the system itself. And that, therefore, has led us to um, catastrophes like the financial crisis without having any warning for it whatsoever from their theory, when if you don't have their blinkers on, it was obvious there was going to be a financial crisis. So they, it is, it is a, it's, it's, it's something which works in good times and is catastrophically bad in bad times. And despite Rodrigo being an optimist here, I'm going to say we're in bad times. We need a theory that can cope with the world in a bad situation, and it's not neoclassical economics. Okay. I mean, Richard, you were going to ask about, because um, you touched on the 2008 financial crisis, and I know that mm -hmm. you are known... Um, or I, I originally came across your work because you were prognosticating about the financial crisis in advance. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I dug in and, and started to try and learn about some of your modeling and how it differed from yeah. classical modeling. Um, so I, I wonder if you can sort of take us back to that time and mm -hmm. explain how you arrived at the conclusion that there was going to be a major crisis. Um, you know, what, what were the underlying mechanics that everyone else was missing but that fit your model so well? Yeah, uh, very good question. I wish I had a couple of screenshots ready for you on that front. I'll, I might bring them up after we talk. Um, but uh, in, I, I, I'm a mathematically oriented thinker and most critics of mainstream criticise the mathematics. And I said, well, actually, no, what they do is not mathematics. I call what neoclassicals do, mathematics. So I wanted to use complex systems analysis and do decent mathematics. And... I found a model of a cyclical economy done by an American economist called Richard Goodwin. And uh, I realized that I could add a financial sector to it because in that model, he had capitalists investing all their profits. And what you got out of it was a cyclical system, booms and slumps, uh, wage, wage share and profit share fluctuating and so on. And he assumed all profits are invested. And I said, well, the obvious thing is uh, less than all, more, more than all profits are invested during a boom, so you borrow money. Less than all profits are invested during a slump, so you pay some of the debt off. And then there can be a tendency for the level of debt to ratchet up over time uh, because you, you, you borrow money during a boom, you have to repay it during a slump, 
you don't quite have the cash flow you expect and you get a ratcheting up effect. And this was all built on the work of Hyman Minsky, who's the, the ultimate contrarian economist, of course. So I took uh, Hyman Minsky's ideas, combined them with Gooden's models and got a mathematical model myself. And one striking feature of that model uh, was that the uh, there were a series, a series of booms and slumps before you finally had a, a final crisis in the model. But the booms and slumps got smaller there was diminishing cycles over time. And that was not something Minsky predicted. Minsky talked about uh, how stability is destabilizing, which is a fantastic line. Um, but he, he, that applied to a single cycle. So he said in a single cycle, have a period of stability that will lead to more euphoric expe expectations, overinvestment, too much borrowing, and then a slump. And that was a single cycle. Mine was getting this over a series of cycles. Quite a striking visual too. I'll bring it up and show it on screen later. And that therefore meant that when what the American economists called the great moderation started to happen, when there were diminishing cycles from 1982 roughly on, I was thinking, uh-oh, uh-oh, this is looking like my model. And then uh, a whole lot of circumstantial reasons why between doing the model and, and uh, publishing my, writing my PhD and then publishing Debunking Economics, I didn't actually look at the data for quite a few years. And then in 2005, December 2005, I was asked to be an expert witness in a court case on predatory lending. And experts in the Australian legal system are, even though you're paid for by one side, you're an employee of the court. So you can't make a hyperbolic statement. And I said, debt, the debt ratio has been rising exponentially, meaning private debt. So I knew I couldn't rely upon the hyperbole. I had to go and back it up. And I thought I'd have to remove the word exponential. So I, first of all, it took a while to put the data together, plotted the Australian debt data, which I could get, and it was a pure exponential curve, exponential increase in the ratio of private debt to GDP. And I thought, oh, my God, what's the American situation? Again, a few hours to get that data together. And again, uh, the same sort of thing, not quite as purely exponential, but exponential rate of growth in the debt to GDP ratio from 1952 forward. And I thought, well, this means uh, this can't continue forever. When the rate of death growth slows down, there'll be a crisis. Uh, but I'm probably the only person looking at this stuff, certainly in Australia. I've got to stick my neck out and warn about it. And that's when I started doing it. So basically looking at an unsustainable trend in private debt is what gave me the warning. And being a non-orthodox economist thinking about that, uh, that's why I looked at it. Whereas the mainstream don't think private debt matters at all. And so they ignore it. And if I can now just, uh, uh, I don't know how this is going to look on on the monitor here, but I'll just quickly yeah, so try. Arnie, I think, yeah, Professor Keane's going to share his screen. Okay, yeah, pardon me. I'll quickly go and, and share it. Um, I could make it make I could make make it larger, but let's go share the entire screen. Okay. Hang on, where's that? Oh, there we go. There we go. Share. Okay. So if you can see those graphs, they're going to be a bit small on the screen, I imagine. But that's the level of private debt to GDP that I was looking out in America. And when I started calling the crisis, it was 2006. And I said, this can't continue. When it turns around, there's going to be a crisis. And what that will be is that the credit-based demand, so demand coming from borrowed money, is going to go from positive to negative. So you see credit here hit 15% of GDP. And then by 2010, it was minus 5% of GDP. And expecting that to come and expecting that to be something which would cause a financial crisis is why... I was one of the handful of economists who actually saw it coming. Sorry, credit demand. So you... Uh, can you? Can I just yeah. understand what credit demand? What's the? Um, how do you? How do you capture that? 
Okay. Well, credit debt is the dollars you owe. Okay? Credit is the new debt you take on in a particular year. So this is we're using accountants' definitions of both. So debt is dollars you owe. Credit is dollars per year, the change in dollars per year that you owe. Uh, in mainstream economics, they pretend that uh, banks are intermediaries. So banks let Richard lend to Adam. And, of course, Richard's got less money, Adam's got more. Uh, Richard's spending goes down, Adam's goes up. They, they cancel each other out. But the real world, and this is what I've been arguing with, with, with non-orthodox economists for 50 years now, and the Bank of England kind of came out and said it in 2014 as well, banks aren't intermediaries. Banks originate debt. And when they originate debt, they create money. And that money which is created, nobody gets into debt for the sheer pleasure of being in debt. You borrow to spend. So the, the change in debt, which is credit, becomes part of aggregate demand and aggregate income. And it's extremely volatile. So income-based demand can fluctuate, but it will never go negative. Credit-based demand can go from positive to negative. And that's what happened back in 2007. And it was the first time that it happened in the post-World War history of American capitalism. Right. So, yeah, I, so I'd love for you to... No, you go ahead, Richard. Yeah, no, I was just going to kind of jump on the, the great financial crisis diagnosis that you, you foresaw, I guess, using a combination of Stein's law and, and, and kind of the debt overhang and, and the subsequent deflationary forces that came about that forced what uh, Summers called secular stagnation. Do you see those same forces persisting even kind of in the wake of the current push for fiscal stimulus? And, and, and how do you square that with uh, the current COVID situation? I mean, how, how do you put those things together? That's about a three-hour answer there. I'll try, I'll try to Take be brief. Okay. Okay. Well, first thing is that uh, like most, most people think with the, my book, Can We Avoid Another Financial Crisis? thought the answer is going to be no. My answer was yes. We can avoid one, but if we have a financial crisis, you've got to have a boom beforehand. And given that the level of private debt has reached such an astronomical scale in America's history, uh, that, that, that debt levels of uh, 170% of GDP, private debt back in 2008, was the highest in the history of American capitalism. Um, so that meant I'd expected there wouldn't, if, if the, even though the, the, all the rescue attempts, the QE, the clash for clunkers, all that sort of stuff from the government stopped it being a, a drastic uh, fall in debt like we had back in the Great Depression. Um, the impact was you had a still very high level of debt, so it fell from 170% to 150%. Uh, but I thought there was very little likelihood for it to boom again because, first of all, borrowers already carrying, you know, five, six times the level of debt compared to income that applied back in the golden age of capitalism were unlikely to want to borrow all that much. Banks were unlikely to want to lend all that much, having burnt their fingers badly in 2000. And eight. So I thought you wouldn't have much credit demand. And therefore, if you had a downturn in credit demand, it wouldn't be coming from the high peak like it was back in 2007. So I said, I didn't expect secular stagnation. That's bloody Larry Summers' useless phrase. I expected credit stagnation. That's what I called it. So credit stagnation was my conclusion out of can we avoid another financial crisis? And I, I thought the financial crisis would occur in countries that managed to borrow away their way through that, which included both Australia and Canada. But uh, I was wrong on those countries having a financial crisis, of course, this pre-COVID. Uh, and the, the reason for that is fundamentally it's the other side of the money creation process. Banks create money by lending more than they get back in deposits. Governments create money by spending more than they get back in taxes. This, of course, brings up the arguments of modern monetary theory. And uh, 
if that money were being used to uh, boost you know, demand for goods and services, uh, that would be fine. Instead, in most of those countries, it's used to boost the house price market, the house prices. You know, schemes that give tax breaks to people buying properties, that uh, give uh, first-home buyers, like in, in particularly Australia has been famous for that, grants to the, the, to the first-home buyer, which I, they call them the first-home buyer's grant. I call them the first-home vendor's grant because you're giving people an extra, like roughly one-for-one one comparison, an extra $25,000 flat, you know, here's 25 grand, go buy a house. Um, well, they'd go with the 25000 at the bank and say, oh, that's great, you've got 25000 Here's 250000 go bid on the house. And they'd factor up by a factor of 10, and, and you get both the, the government seeding it, but also more private debt being taken on. And it ended, ended up being money in the vendor's pocket, not money, not, not enabling the buyers to buy more houses. Uh, in fact, the, the effect of all the stuff has been reduced level of home ownership. Uh, what it does is, is increase house prices. And that's been become a large focus of government policy. Uh, which is one reason I'm not 100% in the MMT camp because I've seen how it can be abused to maintain asset bubbles rather than being used for sensible consumption and investment, which is the way it should be used. Yeah, it seems like credit, the, the policy over the last decade has been to acknowledge that credit growth can't be supported by income. Instead, we need to support it by increasing asset prices. And so the vast majority of credit that's been issued over the last decade is asset-backed credit. And it, obviously, there's a large, there's been a huge corporate borrowing binge. But I think, would you say at the margin that keeping asset prices higher has enabled a an even greater level of acceleration of credit creation? Yeah, and and, and that's uh, and it's a tragic mistake uh, because you, you you don't become wealthy by uh, selling secondhand houses to each other or second-hand shares to each other. Individuals do, but the society doesn't. I, I want to see new capital formation by corporations. I want you know, in, investment capital and uh, uh, IPO capital, not, not uh, higher prices for speculators selling shares to each other. And the same in the housing market. And again, I'll do a bit of a, a share screen here with slightly better uh, graphics. And I've actually got France here because I, I gave a talk on, in France recently. And this, this, what this really shows is what we're talking about isn't just an American or Australian can, a phenomenon. It's uh, it's a global phenomenon. This uh, keeping house prices high being almost government policy. So I'll just actually quickly share again. If we can do that. Yep. Okay. Yep. Share the screen. Uh, entire screen. Hang on. What's going on there? Why am I not getting? Choose what to share. Entire screen. Okay. I've got to click down on the image of the screen itself. Okay. This is the data for France and the. The blue line is the house price index in France, and you can see it took off under the euro, bounced around since then. The red line is household debt, which has gone from under 20% of GDP in the mid-1970s to 70%. Again, lower than America, lower than Australia, lower than Canada, but still the same basic trend. And what I argue is that what actually causes rising house prices is rising levels of new mortgage debt. And the logic there, uh, this is a graph of uh, like this is house... This is household debt. So the debt of the household sector is, is the red line. And the logic is that if you're buying a house, uh, you don't buy it with cash, you buy it with borrowed money. So the demand for housing in a monetary sense is new mortgages. And then if you divide that by the, by the price level, you've got how many houses can be purchased. 
And of course, we know supply is very rigid in the housing market, so the demand is a volatile bit. So you have a relationship between new mortgages or new new household debt, change, which is change in household debt, or what I call household credit, uh, and the price level. And therefore, there's a relationship between change in household credit and change in the price level. And this is now showing that dynamic. So there's your data for the house price level and the level of debt. And here's the change in household credit. So change in new mortgages, effectively, and change in the house price index. And that's over a you know 20-year period. And I'm getting a correlation coefficient of 0.645 for that particular piece there's of data. There's a pretty substantial but, divergence at the moment. What's what's going yeah, on there? Well, I think that's that's uh, uh, probably because COVID has hit. That's 2020. Uh, mm. Let's actually, if you want to see it for America, I can I can rapidly change it to yeah, being right. for uh, America. If I just change that, France, that was America. Australia. France. Uh, oh yeah, yeah, I can do Australia as well. No, 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 I was just curious. Before. I wasn't sure which one it was. That that was yeah, that's that's Australia. So it's not going to change the labels. The labels on the charts are still going to say France, but it, the data itself will now be. Uh, uh, for the USA, and now I take a look at that. For the listening, the uh, charts that we that uh, Stephen was showing showed high correlation, visual high correlation, as well yeah. as the stat that that you mentioned up until 2020, where yeah. household uh, debt went down and housing prices continued to go up. Yeah, and I think that's uh, there's a range of. I mean, that's uh, the government supports that are occurring. Uh, and also possibly people's own use of the cash they do have. I'm not sure about that, uh, but I, I think it's largely the impact of, Q, of QE, you know, to the to the nth degree. And uh, things like uh, I believe Black is it BlackRock that's heavily involved there in buying housing right now. Yeah. Um, so you've you've basically turned housing from a what housing should be is a consumption item, long term mm-hmm. consumption item. We yep. turn it into an asset class, and and now. Uh, all this stuff has okay. been the volatility we used to see in the share market is turning up in the housing market as well. And it's just the wrong way to treat housing. Right. Where well, the I American the, dream the, used to be that uh, every American should be enabled to own a house for long term. Yeah. Then it's turned into let's keep housing, housing prices up in order to have the, the wealth effect to now BlackRock mm. pushing out um, actual homeowners and becomes yeah. an asset class for an asset management firm. So it's, we're not even enabling the dream anymore we're just enabling the wealth effect for portfolios and rias i know and to me yeah it's it's an appalling development i think the um i mean it again it comes back to a government policy to continue to find new ways to enable credit creation right and so Mm, yeah they keep moving from asset to asset and finding ways to securitize new groups of assets in order to continue to drive asset prices higher to enable more credit to be borrowed against those assets, right? It's the ultimate Minskian yeah. Ponzi scheme, right? And maybe and you can solve a riddle yeah. for me. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe you can solve a riddle for me because I've been struggling with how to square this circle in conversations. I'm looking at these home prices rising and household borrowing rising exponentially and thinking this is crazy thinking Mm. it's irresponsible to be buying homes at these prices but the the counter argument which i'm struggling to overcome is that if you look at the total cash flow cost of Mm. home ownership right now because mortgage rates are so low that Mm. in fact if you go back to the 1970s 
even though obviously interest rates were very high, home prices yeah. were so low. And so, you know, the, the actual size of the mortgage relative to incomes was really, was really small. Yeah. Now the size of the mortgages relative to incomes is gargantuan, but it doesn't matter because interest rates are near zero. And so the carrying cost of, of home ownership is so low, but I think this is unsustainable and I still feel like it's irresponsible to go out and buy a home at 10, 10 or 15 times your income. Hmm. But help me square this circle. Well, the, partly because the deposit is what's been rising in scale. Uh, yes, the, once you have the deposit to buy a house, then the cash flow costs are very low. But that deposit is enormous. And uh, in what is often happening, people in, in Australia to talk about you know, going and borrowing from the house, the, the bank of mum and dad. Um, so the previous generation pays for the next generation where they are homeowners. But if you don't have that, if you're somebody from a poorer background, you can't even get on there, on that ladder. And I was actually thinking about my own parents uh, just recently on this front. Uh, they bought their first house when they were, uh, actually, they, they got a gift. They did have the house of bank of mum and dad that, uh, that, that got, them, got them going. But the, the house price was so low that a 30% deposit was the rule. Now, what's happened over time is banks have said, oh, well, we'll help you out. We'll make it a 20% deposit and then a 10% deposit, and then a 5% deposit. And hey, we'll give you 120%. We can pay for the furniture as well. And what, what is happening is we're letting the finance sector take over the ownership of the economy. And, and that's really been the overall impact. So, uh, and, and then if you look at the age at which people are buying property, my parents, when they were, my father was 22 uh, when uh, he got married, and it was a common thing for somebody in their 20s to be have a, have a mortgage in a home they own. And then as time's gone, it's now 40-year-olds that do it. So the more we drive up the prices, the smaller a cohort is actually able to buy into the housing. You get, it becomes a, a form of class division again, which is bad enough to begin with. It makes it worse. Um, and, and then also, um, it, it's so late for people. They're coming in with so much debt now. With how, they haven't got housing debt in America, of course, and Australia too. In the UK, you've got student loan debt, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you simply can't even imagine getting that deposit together without effectively becoming a slave of the financial sector. Now, that is what has become the outcome of that. We are all slaves to Wall Street. And uh, I'm sorry, this is supposed to be capitalism, not a slave system. But when you're a, when you're a, when you're a, a peon of debt, then you might as well be owned by Wall Street. And that's what yeah. we've let happen. I will add that even countries like Canada that added a mandatory 20% money down, the financial system mm. has found a way around that where, where you, yes, mm. if you're buying a mortgage, you have to put 20% down. But just so you know, I have a friend of mine that can offer you a HELOC or a line of credit that has a mm. variable rate interest rate and will pay mm. the other 20%. So we know many people that are 100% in debt. And 20% yeah. of that is variable. So it breeds that instability that we're all kind of worried about. Moreover, yeah. the mortgage payments that would be X amount with a 20% uh, money down are that much higher when you're adding, stacking on top of that, the, the, the interest rates are you going to pay on, on the variable, variable uh, HELOC or line mm. of credit. So it's just, there's even when the governments are trying to create these roadblocks, the Wall Street and the financial system finds a way to to give you that. But they're not game. really creating roadblocks, right? It is it's clear policy to continue to drive home prices higher in every economy. So, mm. you know, these are these are are false um, barriers, right? They yeah. they yeah. 
they take they, look, they take with one hand and they hand out with another. And so well, they, they look like they're giving to the bar and they're giving to the vendor instead. That's what my idea of the first time vendors grant. I mean, if you go back and look where quantitative easing came from, which is generalizing the discussion a bit, Bernanke quite literally said the objective here is to make consumers feel wealthier so they'll consume more. Now, what QE did was drive up share prices, which means it made the wealthy feel wealthier. Yeah. Um, it, it, and it, all these things, uh, the, this, because the government's run by a bunch of neoclassical economists, and they really do have the, the, you know, they've got the government's balls in their hands in the sense that that's how they think, or their brain cells, even <laughs> worse than their balls. Um, uh, so all this stuff is, is they, they actually think rising asset prices is a good thing. And no, I think there's a, there's a, there's a ratio of asset prices to income from assets that's a good thing. And if you get exaggerated levels, that's a bad thing. But when you take a look at what's been done with, say, all the rescues of Wall Street over the last 40 years, ever since the Greenspan put began, um, the the last uh, the last time we had a boost to house prices, uh, as a, to share prices being an absolutely necessary government objective, was when the S and P had fallen to 666, one of my favourite numbers. Mm-hmm. And when you look at the ratio at that stage, the, the share price ratio on on, uh, on Schiller's excellent capital adjusted, a cyclically adjusted price to earnings ratio was 14, which was the yeah. long run average. That's right. So they panicked when it got back to the long run average. I mean, yeah. And so in that sense, the, the, the government, particularly the central banks, have been dedicated to driving the ratio of asset prices to income above what was the long term average for a capitalist system. Yeah, I remember seeing mm-hmm. that number and thinking, OK, we've hit the median or the, or the, the average. We're going to mm. wait to 10 before I start buying, which is obviously the, the worst mistake I could have made at the time. But it just it seemed like hitting the medium was not going to do it was not going to be enough. And, and it wouldn't, more, it wouldn't have been it, it, yeah. it would have continued if it hadn't been for QE. And that you can right. deliberately directly blame on, on particularly Ben Bernanke, but then the entire Federal Reserve system, the bank. And this comes back to economists running the Federal Reserve and and their attitude. Uh, has always been that, uh, you know, that share prices, um, they believe share prices are rational, (laughs) except when they go down, Uh, you know, the whole efficient markets hypothesis. And they saw nothing wrong with driving up share prices. Ironically, there's a very good research paper that shows there is no wealth effect from shares. And it's a research paper by the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. The, the, you had a small wealth effect out of house prices, none out of shares. That didn't stop them getting in there. And deliberately, it's written in, in writing by Ben and Bernanke, the idea of QE is to drive up share prices. But it so also helps drive uh, home prices and, yeah. and, 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 and protect sort of that. I, I, I wanted to touch on this, this criticism of neoclassical economics, which is something that uh, I've heard you, you tackle numerous times. And the yeah. idea that they lean too heavily on these uh, uh, fooled equilibrium models, but also this idea of the rational economic men, which we all yeah. know uh, doesn't really exist because we are slaves to our biases and to incentives and to things like that. So how do you see, I mean, Michael Harris asked good questions. What was the alternative to QE? Let the economy collapse? I mean, what would have been taking, uh, assuming that the, the rational economic man is wrong and we should be, uh, tailoring policy with with the biases and, and the actual behavior of people in mind, what are some of the policies that might have helped uh, then or might help us now? Well, um, 
For a start, let's, let's look at how they define rational. Their definition of rational is somebody who has a model that can accurately predict the future. So, anybody here rational? Okay. Uh, well, my wife is Nost watching, so I, I'll just I raise can my see hand. Yeah, yeah, Nostradamus, so the female version is in the background and Ruri goes, okay. Uh, it's a, they've got a definition which the, any, any sane person would say is prophetic. That's the definition of rational. Uh, and, and secondly, the problem has been caused by too much private debt. So the solution is to reduce private debt. And that's what I proposed back in, I think, 2011 or 2012, what I call a modern debt jubilee. Find a way to use the state's capacity to create money to reduce the level of credit-based money and increase the amount of fiat-based money. We, we live in a mixed economy. The government creates money by fiat. The banks create money by credit. Uh, we, we, because we fell for the neoclassical vision that government money creation was bad and private money creation was good, we had far too much credit creation. That's where the huge debt bubble came from. And, of course, the banking sector very much enjoyed that because they, they benefited out of that rising debt level as well. So you could use the state's capacity to create money to give everybody an equal amount of money. So you and I would get the same amount of money as uh, uh, Donald Trump, okay, 100,000 bucks each, let's say. And if you, get, if you have debt, you must pay your debt down. So debt, Donald will have no spare money. You'd have, you'd have to reduce these debts by 100,000. Some of you might have 100,000 in cash. Uh, the second part, so it, it didn't benefit people who gambled against those who didn't. That's the first thing. No moral hazard in that sense. Mm -hmm. And then if you had any money left over, you would be required to buy newly issued corporate shares where those newly issued corporate shares would have to be used to pay debt down. So you'd have a, a, you'd reduce household debt, you'd reduce corporate debt, and you'd democratise the ownership of, of companies, partially re reversing the increase to inequality caused by QE. So there is a way to go about it, and I've done the mathematics on this, I've done a model of that, is part of my new book, The New Economics. Steve, um, can you explain the last part? Yeah. I just want to make sure the audience understands it fully. So that yeah. everybody gets the, that excess, you are forced to buy shares of a corporation, and that corporation is in charge of buying back? Uh, oh, no, what you'd, have, what you'd, what you'd have, you'd, you'd use an index fund. That's probably the only way to go about this, okay? You'd create an index fund. Corporations that wanted to take advantage of that would ha have to issue shares which could be bought, you know, part of the index fund, where those shares would, the proceeds of those share sales would have to be used to reduce corporate debt because corporate debt is now the highest it's ever been in the history of American capitalism. If you look at the uh, level of corporate debt now, I've, I've forgotten the actual figures. It's about, it's close to 80, 90% of GDP. So you had a huge increase in corporate debt. There's far too much debt and far too little equity. So this is a way to rebalance it so you have a more equity-based share system. Or called corporate system. Can I can I just understand? Because I think I understand your thesis. And forgive me, guys, but I don't know much of uh, Steve's work. But from what I understand, mm -hmm. what you are railing against is unproductive debt by households, right? You're just buying, you're you're getting a debt and you're giving it back to the um, to whoever benefits from a mortgage. What yeah. would work is to give is to make that money productive, whether it's infrastructure or possibly um, new businesses, um, middle class people starting their own businesses and the like. Job so, creation, things like Job that. creation. Yeah. So are you saying that corporate, get, getting money into corporate hands or corporate debt is not productive for society? They're not using it for productive Cor purposes? Corporate, corporate, corporate debt, there's too much corporate debt. If you look at the, what's called the Medigliani-Miller theorem, if you know that particular piece of neoclassical yeah. nonsense, uh, that argues that the, when, when you, uh, the, the ideal 
situation for a company uh, when there's tax to be paid uh, on, on uh, when you get a tax deduction for having interest payments is 100% debt backing. So we've, we've had the mainstream economics being cheerleaders for corporate debt as well as household debt. And when you look at the level over time, uh, the level of, of corporate debt uh, is, is the, the highest in history. Uh, and it's, again, I think that's unproductive. I think I'd, I'd rather have that debt being, um, uh, rather have that, I'd rather have that share capital uh, being what people um, have as the, the, as the financial foundation for corporations rather than private debt. And we've, of course, we've all seen a huge amount of, uh, of uh, corporate debt being used to purchase shares and cancel them. Yeah. So there's a ludicrous overload of, of corporate debt as well as household debt. It's not just, uh, not just the, uh, the household sector that has too much debt. And until we've solved that, do you, do you see the deflationary forces continuing to push uh, uh, us to low economic growth and low inflation? I mean, there are other forces, technology and demographic, obviously, but it, it, it does seem like the argument of there being too much debt in the system continues to be sort of this uh, overwhelming force in the West. Yeah, yeah I, I can see it, it's, a, it's a suppressing force in all sorts of ways. I mean, for example, if you have debt and, and your mind is always focused on how do I reduce my debt level, then one way one individual does that is by spending more slowly. And if you spend more slowly, you have more of an accumulation of money in your bank account. But of course, because you're spending more slowly, there's less money in other people's bank accounts. If you look at the velocity of money over the last 40 years, it's fallen drastically from the levels it was back in the 80s when it was about three. So if you're looking at the uh, money of zero maturity measure that the Fed used to maintain, that was about 3.5 in the 1980s, probably too high. It was two, sort of close 1.8 to two before the inflationary bubble in the uh, 70s to 80s. It's now below one. So what you've got is you know less productive circulating money. And then now I've got so much debt accumulated as well that people aren't willing to get more money that way. So what you've got is very little monetary demand in the economy. And as a monetary economy with a little monetary demand, it's going to be running a level of stagnation. Um, the Japanese situation I also want to mention quickly too. When you look back when people thought Japan was going to take over the planet back in 1990, the levels of corporate debt were enormous. And most Japanese corporations are financed by debt through the Keiretsu system. Now, in the post period after that, there's been very little investment by Japanese companies. I think a major reason as to why is they're focused on paying their debt off. They're not investing. So you, Japan, which if you look back at the old movie, The Rising Sun, it's a bit of a laugh when you look at it now. Yeah? 1990, we thought Japan's going to It's a good movie, good movie. Yeah, yeah. And Japan's going to take over everything 30 years later. Who's got the world's most advanced cars? America. Who has the world's most advanced sound systems? America. Whatever happened to Japan? And you know, and Toyota, and uh, and Sony, and so on. So debt, that much, this much debt is a uh, it's a deleterious impact on the productivity of a capitalist economy. So, Steve, the, the I'm, I'm issue of, of this, I'm thinking of um, you know Didier Sornet, for example. Um, yeah. And and the idea of sort of approaching criticality, right? A critical state, mm. and yep. uh, and then I'm trying to connect the dots with what you were observing in 2005 and six and seven mm -hmm. in terms of the exponential acceleration of private credit growth. And I'm wondering whether you, your models provide a sense of sort of 
thresholds or other types of metrics or indicators that, because I hear you say there's too much corporate debt or there's too much private credit. Yeah, yeah. How do you define too much? Yeah, good question. I haven't uh, still done the empirics on that, but what 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 I what I do get out of out of my modeling uh, is uh, it's an element of chaos theory. So if you know the um, Lorenz, you know the idea of the Lorenz, uh, the butterfly effect. Okay, one subcomponent of Lorenz dynamics is called the intermittent route to chaos, which is uh, uh, the, I've forgotten the name of the two authors of that that main publication. Um, uh, Pomo and Manaville first uh, determined it. And what you have in that is in fluid dynamics, which is where Lorenz comes from, you can have a period of laminar flow, so water's flowing smoothly, uh, with a dynamic that means it gets smoother and smoother and smoother over time, and suddenly it becomes turbulent. Okay? Uh, I get that effect in my models. And uh, what I normally been focusing upon, because it is the, the dangerous situation, is where you have that transition from uh, from from smooth to turbulent flow and so i'm looking at the, the the process that leads to a total breakdown but that level in my model with american parameters came out at about 60 percent of gdp getting north of 60 to 80 percent of gdp is a problem again i'll rapidly share my screen because i've just uh, i'm bringing up part of the uh, um my book where i show that dynamics of my model here and this is an extremely simple version of my model but what you have is a period of diminishing cycles in GDP, uh, and then they start to rise again. And the same thing when you plot employment against wages, what you find is those cycles are causing falling wages share over time uh, and giving your parents stability, and then you get crazy instability developing out of it. And what is happening is a shift of income distribution is going from workers who are losing the amount over here, capitalists remaining constant, what workers lose ends up in the pair, in the share of bankers. Um, so this is the situation I don't want us to be in, but it's the one we've got into by basically letting the financial sector decide what's the appropriate level of debt. And there's there's no level of debt that's too high when you're the financial sector because that's what lets them put their po their fingers into your pockets. So I, I wanted to, to dig into the idea of economics being a function of consumption. And, and, you know, when I go back and I read some of the classical economic texts, what I understood as capitalism was a mechanism for capital formation, right? Mm. Which, which is a function of investment. And yet somehow over the last 50 or 60 years, capitalism has come to focus almost exclusively on consumption. Right. Yep. And mm. so I, I, can you walk me through how we got here? Like, why are we that's so obsessed with, with consumption? That's a very good question. And, and I think it comes back to the point I was making earlier about the transition from the classical school of economics to the neoclassical school. Because when you look at Ricardo in particular, but also Smith, uh, what you find is that uh, they both believe there would be a future stationary state. Okay, there'd be a point where capital accumulation ceased. But their idea was to continue capital accumulation and growth and investment for as long as possible. Now, we've got problems about growth, which we'll come back to later in our conversation, I'm sure. But the idea was capital formation investment. That was the whole focus of the classical school of economics. When the neoclassicals come along, it's all about utility maximization. It ships over to consumption. Okay? Mm. And ultimately, over 150 years of this school of thought dominating the economy, that's people's default way of thinking. 
increasing consumption. That's the important thing. And, uh, and, and there's a lack of physical realism to the neoclassical school as well. They have models where you produce output by putting workers and machines together in a factory. Well, that's great. Put them a whole lot on there and they'll start. The machine, machines won't move and the people won't, won't turn if you don't put energy into either of them. So there's a, there's a physical unreality to it. But the whole focus of neoclassical economics is maximising utility, which you get through consumption. And that's ultimately seeped into the entire, um, you know, ethos of the of the age. Okay, so that explains why, as I observe the policy response to COVID, for example, mm, yeah, I scratch my head because I see, you know, five, six, seven trillion dollars being spent. It's essentially being firehosed into consumer pocketbooks, right? And and mm. I use the word consumer because the the entire objective of these policy responses seems to be to maximize the spending power of consumers, right? And I'm wondering yeah. why we haven't seen any material response in the form of genuine infrastructure spending, right? Spending on mm. um on raw infrastructure, right? Bridges and roads and, and light rail and, you know, the types of things that the CCP, for example, has been spending on for the, for the past 15 years, which would be um, investments that generations of Americans, Europeans, Canadians, et cetera, would benefit from. Um, <clears throat> we don't see any of that. We don't see major spending in on education, which again is a massive investment in, in future productivity. Instead, we see all these programs to continue to find new ways to fire hose um, mm. money into people's pockets and or facilitate easier credit growth, right? So mm. we're going to lower standards for lending or we're going to or we're going to incentivize banks to lend to certain constituencies or et cetera. Is, is this informed by this neoclassical view? And yeah, very much. Does, but, but, can this yeah. go on? It can't go on. It is informed by neoclassical and it can't go on indefinitely. Uh, if you look just like the private credit side of things, then there would have been a stopping point there because ultimately uh, when you get you know so much debt taken on that you can't finance it out of your income that debt helps you generate, then you'll have a, a breakdown like the 1930s and, and, and that's the end of the bubble. But with the power of the Fed being harnessed by neoclassical economists now and way that it certainly wasn't the case back in the 1930s. There's an unlimited capacity of a, of a, a money-creating government to create money, uh, and that is all being done, not all, most of it being done by the Fed, and that's what's driving up the asset prices. And their attitude to credit, neoclassicals don't believe that credit's a problem. If you read Paul Krugman, you would have seen that crazy debate I had back of them in 2012. And he literally says... In macroeconomics, he was all for including banks in stories where they matter. But why do banks matter to a story about debt and leverage? And I just went, holy shit. It's that easy to get a Nobel Prize, isn't it? Uh, well, <laughs> in their model, in their model, credit doesn't matter. In fact, then they think uh, stimulating credit conditions is always a good thing because it's a case of getting money from Richard who hasn't got any good ideas for spending across to Adam who does have good ideas for spending or to Rodrigo who really wants to spend now, you know, um, all this sort of stuff. And that's op optimising in a utility sort of sense. And they think, well, credit's always good, okay? Uh, and they don't think it changes the aggregate level of demand. And that's literally, again, in my debates with Krugman, he says, you know, 
uh, it, Keen talks about credit as though it adds to aggregate demand, but that doesn't make sense in any model I understand, which is the one thing he said in that debate that I agreed with. Um, <laughs> he, did, he doesn't understand the right models. Um, so, but so that their mentality is credit's always good. So that, that comes the, on the credit side. And then on the other side, they think, well, we should leave everything to the private sector. The government should not be involved in inverted commas picking winners. Uh, and therefore, the government shouldn't be funding education and shouldn't be funding research and all the stuff that happened back in the 60s, you know, shouldn't have occurred. Uh, well, you really have to think not in terms of who's better at doing it, you know, but who's capable of coping with it. And back in the 60s, there's no way Elon Musk could have financed an expedition to the moon. That was NASA and it was done to fight the, the Soviets. And the government has this capacity to create money whatever reason it wants to, and that caused an enormous growth in the technological basis of American capitalism. Yep. It's a major part of its success for the subsequent 20 years. And then we you know, cut its balls off with this belief in neoclassical economics and we cut back on all those programs uh, and now the private sector can do it, uh, but it, it, it wouldn't be able to do it without that you know, 40 years or so of building the capability on the government side. So there's some things which are too big, too long-lasting, have the private the private sector doing? You want the government to do those. Others, which are short term, uh, 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 where the where the investment's feasible for a small group, you want the private sector to do that. There's a symbiosis between the two, rather than the antagonism that's built into the way neoclassicals think about it. Funnily enough, they've got the same neo antagonism that Marxists have, only in the reverse direction. A cynic right. might respond that the government that were responsible for the Apollo program or DARPA or the Manhattan Project yeah. of the 19 uh, of the mid 20th century no longer exists, and they're all captured by uh, special interest groups and crony yeah. capitalism being the the norm and, and the regulatory framework and all the guardrails pushing us to this winner take all or winner take most dynamics mm. in the economy. So how would you respond to that? I mean, the, the, the idea would be governments can't do it. You have to force it to the private sector, but as, as you rightly well, pointed out, the private that's sector. Been a, that's been a very successful neoliberal uh, policy because, I mean, the, my favourite example is Cameron, David Cameron, the, the prime, previous prime minister of the UK who gave us Brexit. He, uh, the, the, he imposed austerity in the aftermath of the crisis in the UK. And one, one effective way to impose that austerity is to stop funding local councils. And then when local councils can't, aren't, aren't funded, they've got to shut various services down. And finally, somebody complained to him about it that he took seriously, i.e. his mother. Mother wrote and complained <laughs> about the library in her uh, local uh, constituency being shut down. So David, dutiful son, wrote to the, uh, to the mayor of that council, who happened to be a Tory. He got a seven-page reply back from him, the Tory councillor saying, what we've had to do courtesy of your cutbacks of our fundings. And he said, we don't even have, uh, said, can't you get rid of some of the back office activities? He said, we already did. There are three councils in this area. We've all sacked our own clerical staff and pulled together to have this you know, separate service doing the work of three councils. And the library, uh, the, the, the library clerical staff are gone. <laughs> we can't just get rid of them, they're already gone. So we had to shut the library down. And then people say, although that's just a sign of how bad government is. So in this, there's a deliberate what's called public policy approach in neoclassical economics to treat people in the public service as being venal just in the same sense that Donald Trump is venal. I'm sorry. If people who go into public service quite frequently have got the public, genuinely have a public sense of interest in mind. And, and we've 
but over time they've been, uh, you know, pe pe nobody goes into being a nurse in ICU because they want to make a profit, okay? There's a, there's a real sense of caring for human beings there, which we're finally recognising in the middle of COVID. But we've undermined that belief in public service that people have uh, so much and we've underfunded it that the public ends up being pretty bad. We think well, we'd be better with the private. That's exactly what they what the, the neoliberal politicians want us to think. So you, if you have well-funded public uh, public health, for example, uh, which is still the rule, thank God, in my home country of Australia, uh, and people can experience it, then there's a there's a fight, fight to the death attitude from the public not to let the Tories, and we have a local bunch of Tories called the, the Liberals, undermine it. But they've been very. You never had it in America. And they've been very successful at undermining it in the UK. Um, so it, often the, the failures of the public sector are caused by it being strangled financially by neoliberal politicians. So one thing I, I have a hard time kind of is if we were to look back and take your policies into account versus the mm. the amount of credit that existed throughout the, the 1990s, 2000s and now, would we end up in the yeah. same place? I mean, we have, no. <laughs> uh, I think all the fiber opt cable that exists around the world was funded by debt that eventually, you know, everybody had to write off. Now we have this mm. massive infrastructure. Same thing for oil fields. I mean, there's arguments to be made that debt and credit have actually gotten us much farther as a society than something that would be a combination of government with, um, with corporate planning. Yeah, look, I agree. I, I agree with that. And one book I recommend, if you haven't read it yet, is The Brief History of Doom by Richard Vague. Are you aware of that book? No. Okay. Rich, Richard is a, a billionaire. He won't tell me how much he's worth, but he's a billionaire, courtesy of being quite successful running two financial corporations in Texas. And uh, he's looked at the history of, uh, pardon me, turn one of my lights off by accident there, uh, looked at the history of uh, debt of crises around, around the world and said every last major financial crisis has been caused by private debt. They forget about government debt being a cause of problems, it's private debt. But he, uh, as somebody who worked in the Texas uh, banking sector during the, the oil boom of the 80s, and he's, he's very conscious that you know, a lot of the construction was for debt finance, the railways in the UK and America were largely debt financed. So debt does play a creative role when it's the servant of the industrial sector. The trouble is when you let it become the master, and that's what we've done. So if you constrain finance, a certain amount of debt and turnover of debt is, is quite creative. I don't want to have zero debt. Uh, I want to have about 60% of debt, 60% of GDP debt, you know, 40 okay. to 60%. That's quite a sustainable level. And then, the, and I want to have corporations getting, I mean, you can't get money, you can't borrow money from a bank anymore. I've had a very painful personal experience of a, a family member wanting to start a business and being able, unable to get a loan, so I gave it a loan. That worked out very badly for my family, unfortunately. But um, if, if it had been an old-fashioned bank manager who knew what a successful business person this m member of my family was, then she would have got a loan and it would have been a successful business able to finance itself out of the debt commitment. Would have been no problem. But because the only way she could get a loan was by mortgaging a house that was already mortgaged, she couldn't start a business. So I want to get finance sector lending to companies again for genuine investment, for working capital and so on, rather than at the moment, the funding, as Adam said earlier, for asset bubbles. Right. That's what, that was my next question. We have this massive mm. cre uh, private credit all around the world. Canada's huge as well, mm. so we're mostly Canadian. Yeah. And, um, and what you've shown is that most of that credit goes to mortgages. 
Yep. How do you get how do you get money into entrepreneurs' hands? That I think you've got to other, change other ways. Yeah. Go to the to the mortgages. Is it a, a universal basic yeah. income with some caveat? I, I, I have a range of things. I mean, yes, the universal basic income is something I support. Okay, I, I, a lot of modern monetary theory people don't. I do. I think it's a good idea. But in terms of, comp, of the, the banking sector, I'd want to go back to small regional banks again where they know their local uh, business people and can therefore lend on their knowledge of who's a good and who's a bad business person. My father was a banker of that nature back in the 60s and 70s. Um, and he, he literally he knew every business in Circular Quay, you know, which is where he was based. Um, so his knowledge of, of who was worth lending to, who wasn't, was, was pretty comprehensive. And you could get a loan as working capital or investment capital for a going concern. Getting money to entrepreneurs is much harder. Uh, if a bank lends to entrepreneurs as a general rule, they're going to lose their money. So I would, one thing I proposed was to change the, uh, the nature of banking to make it a bit like a combination of, of retail banking and venture capital, that you could have a bank lending and taking an equity position in what I call entrepreneurial equity loans. So uh, you might lend to five companies, you know, four of them go bust, one of them succeeds, and the capital gain on the one that succeeds makes up for the capital losses on those that fail. By the way, some of my patrons, when I mentioned that, threw their hands up in horror and said, I don't want a bloody banker on my board. And I can completely understand that. So you'd have to have controls on how much control the bankers themselves had as a result of that. Their short-termism tends to get in the way. But something that meant banks would actually lend to entrepreneurs. And then also more, more fiat money in existence so you don't need to borrow as much because there's more cash flow. You also have to have an economy that has a enough of a safety net to allow more people to take risks, right? Yeah, and definitely. Yeah. That's how I see basic the, income. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that is, and, and I know you've already advocated for, for uh, public, publicly funded healthcare and a stronger mm. education system and, <clears throat> you know, um, better, more comprehensive welfare and, and um, job, joblessness support and, you know, um, unemployment income and all that kind of stuff. But, is, does that run counter to the neoclassical model? To oh yeah, <laughs> so yeah. why? Because you're creating well, malincentives. They, they, uh, they have a they have a vision. If you, if you, like if I, I do this, you know, what what am I drawing? Supply and demand curves, okay? And the intersection is is, is nirvana. That's where nirvana occurs. Uh, and anything which deviates you from nirvana is a bad thing. But that's that's the mental framework of somebody in neoclassical economics. Supply and demand, let the market choose. And if you have any intervention whatsoever, whether that's trade unions or governments, you move away from that equilibrium point, and that's a bad thing. And that's become the mindset we have. And when you have a mindset instead that says there's a symbiotic relationship between government and the private sector, then there are some things which are better done by the private sector, some things better done by public. I'll use an example in universities. I think university education should be difficult to get, hard to get into university, but free once you're there with the state paying the finance. And that would mean the students are then spending the money they get from the state. It's not a bureaucrat deciding where the money goes. It'll be the students receiving the scholarships. Um, uh, but in terms of the food on the campus, I want that to be, be, be capitalist, thanks very much. I've experienced university uh, mess halls. Give me, uh, give me the local, um, <laughs> uh, you know, like a, like a street food in, high, high, in uh, Bangkok any day over, over the, um, that the mass production stuff you get out of bureaucracies. So there's, there's, there's ways you can say 
there are areas where it's better to have public funding and there are areas where it's better to have private innovation. Well, I found um, it interesting not, when I met e Richard. Economics, yeah, yeah, yeah. When you Sorry, met Richard, I, Richard's, yeah. Richard's Brazilian. Okay, so I went uh -huh. uh, a few years back. He says, you got to come to Rio, you got to come to Sao Paulo. So I decided to read a book on Brazil on my way there. And it was shocking uh -huh. to me to see how much of the industries Brazil is known for were mm. incepted and created by government, right? Uh, yeah. Petrobras, um, the car industry, they tried their hand at the computer industry and that didn't work out. Mm. And then the, the university institutions, these technical institutions that sprouted from that mm. in initiative is what continued to not only feed the, the Petrobras and, and the car industry, but we ended up meeting, we're quantitative um, uh, investors. We met mm. those people who came out of the university, didn't get a job in Petrobras, and ended up in the financial industry or in other areas that required technical mm. knowledge that continued to, to kind of push forward the Brazilian ingenuity and, and uh, innovation and, you know, kind of becoming a global player. So to me, mm. that was a, a, a key moment in my life where I'm like, huh, maybe, maybe some government partnerships and intervention yeah. is not a bad thing. Like we've been led to believe that every, as a capitalist, every government yeah. intervention from a business perspective is wrong. So anyway, that's yeah. just kind of interesting observation with regard to corporate and, and private uh, funding. Putting in a good word country. for the Brazilian government is not something you hear every day, especially <laughs> on a podcast. So good on you, Rodrigo, for doing that. But <laughs> Professor, I wanted to kind of understand your views, given where we are, given what the incentives are currently in the economy. How do we walk backwards? I mean, walk away from this disequilibrium, from, from, from this wealth concentration and, and so many of, of the other issues, particularly debt overhang that we see, to something yeah. that is more akin to how, how you would view to be a more productive use of, of, of labor and capital and, and technology. Yeah. Well, a, ma a major part is reducing the power of the financial sector. And that means reducing the level of private debt. And that's where the modern, modern debt jubilee came in. And uh, I've actually modeled that in my Minsky software, by the way, um, how it could actually be done. And one outcome that I didn't expect was uh, a debt jubilee which created no money. It basically swapped credit-based money for Fed-based money, caused an economic boom. And the reason being that because the distribution of income has become so skewed towards the wealthy, uh, by giving a per capita gift to everybody across the economy, you push it more into the hands of the poor and the middle class who spend a lot more. So the, the amount of demand goes up in the economy, which of course would benefit corporations. And uh, so it's possible to do it. Um, I know it won't be done. And what really scares me is more the, the ecological question. I think um, as well as uh, encouraging us to take on too much debt, neoclassical economics, particularly William Nordhaus, let's put names here, have encouraged us to grow far larger than we should ever have done on the planet. And our, I think our future is going to be shrinkage, not growth. Okay, so this is this is perfect because I, this is exactly where I was hoping we would we would transition to, um, mm. because I know a lot of your work focuses on how the modern capitalist system does not properly or or even at all account for externalities, right? First, second, third order yeah. externalities whatsoever, and sort of going back to limits to growth and as our consumption-oriented economy begins to, to knock up against um, the 
limits of the of, of our biosphere. So so maybe walk through the the work that Nordhaus did and how he arrived at his conclusions and why they're so misguided and what the implications mm. are now for for the world and and um, the environment and, and climate. Yeah, well, I think it's, it's this, the only way I can rationalize how Nordhaus thought about climate is that he comes from this you know, the neoclassical school. He, he He's writing the Samuelson textbook these days, which is the original neoclassical economics textbook. So he's become the, the custodian of the conventional wisdom. And because you, that is a model which says, well, capitalism can cope with anything, an auto- automatic thing, well, ca- if capitalism can cope with anything, therefore climate change can't be too much of a problem. And in looking at, in, in, he, had, he, he first began by attacking the limits to growth. He rab- rubbished the analysis they use, completely misunderstanding it, as Forrester pointed out in a journal so walk article. Through, walk through yeah. the details of that, because I think people will find that yeah. really fascinating. Okay, okay. Uh, it, what we call the limits to growth are published by what's, called, what's known as the Club of Rome. But the people who wrote it aren't a bunch of hippies or even a bunch of Italians. Uh, they were MIT engineers who developed a whole new approach to modeling complex systems called system dynamics. And they built the world's first large scale model, uh, which basically looks at feedbacks. And what you have is amplifying and dampening feedbacks in a system. So if you, for example, have more food, uh, that is an amplifying feedback for the number of children. But if you have more food, you also have more income, and that dampens the need to have more kids to keep you alive later in life. So when you put all these feedbacks together, what you get with rising income is declining population growth, for example. Now, what Nordhaus did was feed that particular part of limits to growth into an equilibrium model and say, look, it predicts rising population with rising income, which is the opposite of what the limits to growth study actually found. So what you have with limits to growth was a a way of handling feedbacks in a complex system with non-equilibrium behaviour. And I know from speaking personally to one of the authors, Randers, of the limits to growth, they actually thought economists would welcome this technology because it would enable them to escape from having to assume everything happens in equilibrium. And they were horrified and shocked by the hostility that economists showed towards them because what they wanted to do is go back to equilibrium thinking. They didn't they did, they want to stop thinking in equilibrium. They want to make everybody think in equilibrium terms. So that was get rid of the capacity to think in a non-equilibrium fashion, which is what the limits to growth was about. And then over time, Nordhaus gradually developed his own approach based on an equilibrium way of thinking. But his main paper, I want people, you can actually find it um, in, on, pretty easily on the web, a 1991 paper called To Slow or Not to Slow, The Cost of the Greenhouse. And he, in that, he assumed, simply assumed, that 87% of industry would be unaffected by climate change because it happens in what he called carefully controlled environments. Now, that included manufacturing, services, all, uh, you know, retail and wholesale, government, okay, mining. Now, what have all those things got in heaven? They're either underground or under a roof. Okay? So he basically said anything not exposed to the weather is not exposed to climate change, assumption number one. Now, if you do that, first of all, it shows you don't know what climate change is. Okay? And secondly, if you do it, you get trivial numbers for climate change. So he came out in that paper saying, using his calculations, the impact of a three degree Celsius, uh, five degree Fahrenheit increase in temperature across the planet would be a zero, a, a one quarter of 1% fall in GDP. 
Now, once so you that's set not that, GDP, hmm. that's not annual GDP. That's like one quarter of one percent in cumulative GDP, yeah, it, right? It, if you want, if, what if it's basically saying the GDP of the you know, of the global economy in twenty one hundred uh, will be one quarter of one percent less than it would be if there was no global warming. Uh, and that, in terms of an impact on the rate of growth, is like a 0.002% fall in the rate of growth, which you can't even measure. And that's yep. what they uh, pumped out. And, 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 and like I'm sure it's Larry Summers, who was one of the experts that Nordhout surveyed for one of his uh, papers, who said that uh, he was impressed by the fact that it takes a very fine pencil to tell a difference between an economy with or without climate change or with or without mitigation. And they literally assumed it was trivial. And then that's where their arguments for, for carbon taxes and so on have come from with small numbers because, you know, uh, the worst estimates they gave uh, uh, were, uh, I think, of a 13% fall in GDP compared to what would, we, would be in the complete absence of climate change when in 80 years' time we'd be six to eight times as wealthy anyway. So, so I think it's worth it. going through the the analysis that Nordhaus did, how he arrived mm. at his his numbers, because I I think that's it's fascinating that at the time he he felt and I mean I went back and and looked at that paper and then yeah looked because because so many papers on climate science referenced that 1991 paper, yeah. so I went back and read it after you I heard you mention it. And it's yep. fascinating how he arrived at those conclusions with, with this strange linear thinking, you like almost like taking a cross-sectional approach and then extrapolating it longitudinally and and assuming linear effects. Yeah, I mean, but, it, it, it's, but can I just yeah. on that? Is yeah. he saying that um, all these industries can control their say, uh, uh, own building to to maintain any adverse effects to the to the environment because they're closed off? Is that what his... Yeah. I'll, I'll give what you about a like, quote. How, where do they get their energy? Oh, you don't need they... energy to... You don't need energy to produce output. You just need to put machines and... I mean, this, this, is, this is where neoclassical economics is so dangerous because they became divorced from the whole physical world, okay? So their model of output, the main model they used to call the Cobb-Douglas production function, uh, and that says output is a function of labour and capital and technology. No energy. Now, I, I, my, my little insight that got me into this area in the first place, I wanted to say, well, that's wrong. Energy has to play a central role. How can you bring it in? And one of my favourite uh, little sayings that originated my, a new approach for me in economics was to say, labour without energy is a corpse. Capital without energy is a sculpture. So you have to have energy as an input. And if you have zero energy in, you'll get zero products out the other side. But they, in their models, you can have zero energy in and produce tons of output out the other side. So they're literally, they're mentally divorced from the physicality of the real world. And therefore, they can come up with these models and not even realise how absurd they are. And like, I'll give you a quote. This, this is the quote from that paper. Uh, let's say, Table 5 shows a sectoral breakdown of United States national income where the economy is subdivided by sensitivity to greenhouse warming. The most sensitive sectors are likely to be those such as agriculture, where output depends upon, in a significant way upon climatic variables. At the other extreme are activities such as cardiovascular surgery or microprocessor fabrication in clean rooms, which are controlled in carefully controlled environments that will not be directly affected by climate change. Our estimate is that approximately 3% of US, not, the US national output is 
produced in highly sensitive sectors, another 10% in moderately sensitive, and about 87% in sectors that are negatively affected by climate change. In other words, all you need is a roof. You guys got a roof? No worries. I mean, it's insanely stupid. It's, it's beyond parody how bad this stuff is. And that's and what how horrifies did he, me. How did he derive his models? I don't want to lose that. Yeah. The models were based on uh, uh, what's taken over neoclassical economics since uh, uh, the so-called rational expectations revolution is the, uh, the work of uh, a, a, a tw- polymath in the tw- uh, early 20th century called Ramsey. And Ramsey built a model, uh, what he called the, uh, a model to work out the optimum savings rate for an economy. And that has growth occurring, again, because of capital and labour being combined together. Uh, and, the, and, and, and this approach, um, again, assumes equilibrium. Now, when you look at the, the Ramsey model, it has, it, it, he talks about, it literally talks about a bliss point in the far future. And that bliss point is where the rate of change of uh, head per capita consumption uh, and the rate of change of the capital labour ratio stabilise. Okay? And that the equilibrium of that system is what's called a saddle, the saddle node. Now, if you there's three basic types of equilibrium. You have a stable one, which is, which is a bit like, a, like a, a bowl. You throw a ball bearing into a bowl, it'll end up in the bottom of the bowl. Uh, or you turn it upside down, and it's a hill. You throw it on the hill, it'll slide down. A saddle, uh, if you are a magician who can throw a ball bearing so that it runs up and down the spine of the horse, it'll stay on the horse's back. But, of course, it's going to slide off. Well, that's the actual equilibrium. It's unstable mathematically. So Ramsey assumed that you could go back in time and find the consumption level and, therefore, the investment, investment being effectively output minus consumption, find the consumption level that puts you on the path to land on the on the bottom of the horse's back, you know, in the bliss point in the far future. And they call that a jump variable. Now, that's the model that Ramsey used, So uh, that, that Nordhaus uses. So in his model, you hit the bliss point in 2,500, effectively. And no matter what happens to the economy, no matter how much damage occurs, and we showed this in a recent paper, which we hope will be published <clears throat> in proceedings of the Royal Society in the next few months or so, um, we hit that with the damages of 98.4% of GDP destroyed. And it hit the bliss point in 2,500, even though only at one point only 1.4% of GDP was left. And at that point, with maximum damages, the output, the, the capital to output ratio, or the output to capital, is normally about one to three. You know, if you, your output's a billion, your capital is going to be valued at three billion. The output to capital ratio in that was 20. Okay, so one dollar of capital produces 20 dollars of output. That was necessary to sustain the model. And, and the Cobb-Douglas production faction happily gave you that result. Uh, <clears throat> so we, we have a completely non-physical, non-biophysical vision of how output is produced that is essential to the results these models are returning. So if we live in a world where you don't need physical goods to produce output, everything's going to be fine. Okay, so I just want, because we sort of lost track because... We, we pursued two, a couple of different directions. But yeah. what the point I was trying to get at there, too, was that my understanding was that, that the way that Nordhaus arrived at his um, rate of decay as a function of increases in um, global temperature yeah. was by observing productivity in, for example, New York State and mm. observing productivity in Florida 
and then determining that there was a gradient, right? Like fitting a linear function on the gradient between the difference in productivity between New York State and Florida and the difference in average um, temperatures in New York yeah. and Florida. That, 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 that's, the sec- that's the second method. So there are two, two main methods they made up their numbers. I'm not going to call them data. The first one is the one I mentioned originally where they simply assume that a roof will protect you from climate change. Right. And, and then they say, well, what's left, which is affected, there's an optimum temperature for agriculture. And, and so if you're in a region where the temperature is lower than the optimum and global warming you know, raises the temperature, that'll be good for you. And there are others which are too warm and that'll be bad and unbalanced minor effects. But the other thing is the one you talked about. And that was the first one I realised because I read Richard Toll's 2009 paper, The Economic Impact of Climate Change. And I literally, I mean, my wife hadn't walked into the room with some food for me. She's done here a short while ago. And she's very Buddhist about these things. I would have gone into a deep depression because I read it and thought, you are so, can I swear in your program? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. It's it was so fucking stupid. You fucking idiots. You're going to kill us all. That was my reaction. Because what he said was they assumed that the temperature to GDP variation we find today can be used to proxy climate change. And this is what you're talking about here. So if you look at, for example, and I'm going to use two states of America in this example, you look at Maryland and uh, Florida, they differ in temperature by about 10 degrees Celsius, which is, say, about 16 degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, and, the, and Florida's got about a $20,000 per head uh, GDP uh, per capita income lower than Maryland's. So they said, well, that means that if temperature rises by 16 degrees Fahrenheit, uh, uh, GDP per head will fall by about 20%. Now, if temperature rises by 16 degrees Fahrenheit, we and most other life forms on this planet will be extinct. So what they're, they're totally ludicrously saying, we can, we can compare spots on the planet today and the temperature difference and GDP difference can be used to predict the impact of climate change. They haven't got a clue what climate change really is. And did they make yeah, up I mean, their own numbers and reproduce them? It is totally absurd. It's absurd yeah. to think that we could enter another ice age and have you know, 60 to 80% of the planet covered in glaciers or yeah. enter enter a, a new regime of, of higher temperatures, five or 10 degrees Celsius higher than today globally, which would have total desertification of, of the planet mm. um, and only experience a cumulative 20% reduction in uh, in total output or, you know, a reduction, annual reduction in GDP per capita of 20%. I mean, it's, just... yeah, it's, it's crazy. And like you, you make a good point with the, with the freezing bit as well, because Nordhaus's damage function, which says what is going to be the impact of climate change on GDP is a quadratic and the quad, you know, Y equals X squared. Well, the, the big question for a quadratic, the only thing is what's the parameter before the X squared and his parameter before the X squared is now 0.00227, meaning that for each, uh, the, if there's a one degree increase in temperature, the decline in GDP will be less than one quarter of 1%. That's back to the first number he used, 0.227. And then if it's two degrees, it's four times that, which is less than one, 1%. You get up to 4%, it's about a 4% fall. So there's trivial uh, amounts, but it's a quadratic. Now, we know that the, the ice age was roughly four to six degrees Celsius, you know, six, six to 10 degrees Fahrenheit, colder than now and at that point new york was below a kilometer of ice and mm. so is chicago and all of you know a fair bit of northern europe and according to that model the gdp 
would be eight, would be uh, seven point nine percent smaller than it is today. <laughs> yeah, and 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 that's how stupid it is. It deserves to be laughed at, not to be taken seriously. But these guys have taken it seriously. And like the worst I've seen, we one thing um, the paper that I've written, uh, which I'm hoping to be published in Proceedings of the Royal Society sometime soon. My one of my co-authors is Tim Lenton, who's a climate scientist who first started researching tipping points. And the and tipping points are things where like a, a small change in temperature can cause a total qualitative flip in something. So the, the clearest one is the, the Arctic. Uh, when the Arctic goes from being ice covered during summer to a clear of ice during summer, it goes from reflecting 90% of the solar energy that falls on it to absorbing 90%. So you get a dramatic increase in energy. That's a tipping point. And uh, in this paper uh, written in 2008, Tim surveyed a whole lot of experts on different major components of the climate. And the conclusion was uh, that there was a um, uh, highly likely that we'd already tipped the Arctic, okay, already tipped, and the Greenland and Arctic were clearly likely to go this century, and five of the six other systems could also surprise us by having a nearby tipping point. And Nordhaus's summary of that was to say their survey found no critical tipping points for the next three centuries for a temperature rise of less than five degrees Fahrenheit. Now, I looked at that and I thought if any school student or university student had submitted this paper as a summary of that paper, I would have failed him and probably kicked him out of the course. <laughs> well, show, show me the incentives and I'll show you the, I'll show the action or I'll show you the opinions, right? So I, hmm. I don't think we need to, to dive too deep into this, but it's, it's likely that Mr. Nordhaus had uh, an, an incentive misalignment, let's call it, with, with perhaps what would be the uh, best interest of the planet as a whole. And I think uh, Jason Buck, uh, uh, rightly invoked Gelman amnesia, right? We should we should definitely take uh, uh, Nordhauser's opinions with a, a huge boulder of salt, specifically mm. in this uh, in this topic. But the challenge so is that Nordhaus's seminal research has permeated the entire canon of economic thought on climate change, right? Absolutely. So to, to what extent, for example, does the new IPCC report rely on Nordhaus's work for their modeling? It'll be in the second or third report, not the first one is by the scientists, so that doesn't get polluted by economists. But the, the I, think it's, I think it's working group two these days that does it, I'm not really sure, uh, but one of the, that's where the economists publish it. And they literally came out in the 2014 report where one of the chief co-authors was Richard Toll, who's a total acolyte of, Nor of Nordhaus, uh, they actually had a frequently asked question saying, will other industries be affected by climate change? And guess what? You know, industries that aren't exposed to the weather aren't exposed to climate change, exactly the same assumptions. And they <laughs> came out saying, everything you can possibly think of will be more important than climate change. So I'm waiting to see what the, the, what the economic section is like this particular time around. But largely speaking, yeah, they'll come up with the same sorts of conclusions. So he's poisoned the whole field. Do you think that the... The, the fact that neoclassical mm -hmm. economics and, and, and sort of this broader uh, 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 philosophy ignores the role of energy in yes. production is a key variable in not accounting for the externalities that are leading us towards this, this doomsday yeah, path, as you described. Absolutely. absolutely. I mean, and I don't blame Nordhaus, I blame Adam Smith. 
because if you go back far back enough in his, economic history, history economic thought, uh, the preceding school to Adam Smith was the physiocrats based in France, which is highly rural compared to Scotland, which is highly industrial. Smith actually went to France and met the leading physiocrats. And their argument came from a book by Richard Cantillon, uh, which is, I, rec I can't think of the title right now, but Richard Cantillon, you'll find the book online. And the opening paragraph of that book says is that land is the source of all wealth. Hmm. Pardon me, I've got a mosquito trying to be, make me part of its food supply over here. Pardon me. Uh, <laughs> one of the ah, joys of living in Thailand. Um, so, so they said land was the basis of all value. Now, you look at the first chapter of, of uh, Smith's Wealth of Nations, and it's, he's taken land out and he put labour in. And I can understand it, from, again, from his point of view. He's in industrial Scotland. If you're down in France and you put a seed in the ground and you see a seed becomes 10,000 seeds in a plant, then it's obvious you're getting a free gift from somewhere, being the sun. And they actually talked about the free gift of nature. And that was the sort of thinking they had, which fundamentally energy played an essential role, even though the word energy hadn't been invented at that stage. The word energy was only written, you know, I think, in 2000. Oh, I got him, beauty. Uh, invented in 18, 1809 by an English polymath. But they saw a central role for energy and said that's, that's what we're exploiting and turning into wealth, whereas Smith said it's labour. Now, what that set up over time was the labour theory of value battle. Uh, where's, where does profit come from? Is it, is it labour or capital? Okay. And we then had Marx coming out of that. Okay. And then the neoclassicals come along and say it's labour and capital together. But in the process, we've forgotten energy. We've forgotten the real world. And so you have models of production in which energy plays no role. Now, if you have energy in there, by definition, you have to have waste, okay? And we have waste, you then have a question of what's the capacity of the system to absorb that waste and so on and so forth. So if we hadn't been diverted by Smith, we'd been built on what the physiocrats had, we would never have got into this situation. We would have been aware that to actually have production on the planet, we have to take available energy, which we get for free from the universe, turn it into useful work, and that will necessarily cause waste energy and waste materials, and we would have been thinking about that right from the very outset. Instead, we're going to realise it in the middle of a crisis. Couldn't it be the case See, I was that always under the impression... Wrote, sorry, Rod, I just Rick, wanted to, to take this yeah, forward. Yeah, because, yeah. because Smith wrote this, call it two centuries ago, he was using labour as a proxy for energy because it was the, the, the labour of man that kind of drove forward the production function. And, and it was our, yeah, exactly. Yeah, men and beast. Mm. And it was our job as a society in the 200 years uh, that followed to evolve our thinking towards acknowledging energy. So perhaps he used the proxy that he had in place, given his, his surroundings, as you so rightly put in Scotland. And I want to add to that because that was along the same lines, yeah. and maybe you can answer this. So with that in mind, I yeah. always thought that the, the cost of capital embedded the cost of energy. And that the the theories on externalities that came later also fit in the model of uh, you know taking that cost into account. So are, is is it the fact that capital or the idea of like the cost of capital does not account for energy? It doesn't account for it at all. And and that is, I mean, like a bunch of non-orthodox economists and, and engineers and scientists have been trying to incorporate energy and economic theory of production for decades. One of them being a good friend of mine, Robert Ayers, Bob Ayers. And, uh, and throughout, they're saying that you have to have energy playing a critical role in your thinking. Now, I have, for example, I, I had a meeting with the United Nations Environment Program in Bangkok, as it happens, uh, about a decade and a half ago, when I was doing a report along with uh, Australia's uh, 
primary primary research center on on resource sustainability in Southeast Asia. And at one point in debating with the chief economist of the United Nations Environment Program, he said, oh, we don't have enough energy. We can combine labor and capital to make it. And myself and uh, uh, it was uh, 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 I think of Wall's last first name, but uh, one of the other non-orthodox uh, physicist economists said, oh, so you believe in perpetual motion machines, do you? <laughs> He had no idea what we were talking about. So they simply don't have an understanding of energy. The laws of thermodynamics don't even register with them. So in that sense, we've failed. I mean, but Smith helped by distracting the argument for a century. And and then the way out of it was a political resolution, the the idea that labour and capital both contribute to production through Cobb-Douglas production functions and so on. So we've been sidetracked from thinking about the economy in a biophysical way right from the outset. So we've been, you know, the, the common narrative is that uh, global warming uh, does not lead to any major economic disasters. We clearly, if, if we believe your work and, and understand it, changes, mm-hmm. small changes in weather can lead to major changes in GDP, possibly, possibly the extermination of humanity. The question mm-hmm. I, that's still out there is whether we can do anything about it and whether, in fact, it was the externalities of capitalists that are causing this global warming, right? You, you mentioned yeah. the, the Ice Age. That happened without any intervention. How much data and evidence is there right now that indeed it is human beings doing versus... Overwhelming, uh, overwhelming. You've got to be a flat earther to believe it otherwise. I'm sorry. Anybody who, who argues against humanity being the main causing factor is a flat earther, uh, you know, uh, uh, it, it is just massive evidence in that sense. And, in fact, the tendency, the, the natural cycles of the planet, we know them, I can't think of, I can call it a Molotovic cycle, but the whole range of different cycles uh, about Earth's orbit that affect the amount of energy reserved from the sun. There are cycles on the sun as well, et cetera, et cetera. When you put all those together, there was a cooling trend, uh, which apparently is about to reverse, but it's it's been, generally speaking, for most of the last 200 years, uh, those natural cycles have been making the Earth cooler. So the, the contribution of humanity by increasing carbon dioxide has overwhelmingly been more than 100% of the cause of increase in global temperatures. And then the question is, what does this do to the mechanics of the planet? And here we tend to be... We, 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 this is the point Adam made a moment ago. We mistake geography for climate. You know, if you know if you drive from New York to Florida, you're going to have a warmer environment when you get down there okay and florida is going to be have a sustainable economy because it can buy wheat from iowa now if you increase the temperatures as much as we're doing so that the uh, ideal rate growing range for wheat moves north faster than we can grow topsoil then you're not going to have food at some point and then this, this is what's going on. Uh, the neoclassicals, particularly Richard Toll, uh, uh, I think a few people I loathe more than Richard Toll on, on this thing. So let's, let's get the personal stuff out in the open. Uh, but he, they're arguing that the climate change changes, changes slowly. Well, if we're changing the temperature at the rate of something of the order of, you know, one degree Fahrenheit per 20 years, we're driving the optimal location for wheat farming from Iowa towards the Canadian border. And that is faster than topsoil can form. So we're mm. going to, you know, on that front alone, we could, even though it might now become possible to grow uh, you know, a wheat much further north, topsoil isn't there. 
And if you look at the what, what are the parts of the planet having the worst wildfires right now? Siberia. Uh, you know, uh, so the we we have caused far far faster rates of change in the climate than there has ever been experienced on the Earth before, with the sole exception of when the meteor knocked out the dinosaurs. So the optimists obviously will um, bring to bear the argument that human innovation is up to this task, right? Is we will be able to innovate our way around this anthropomorphic um, climate change um, in time. Are you seeing any evidence that that is no, possible? No, I, without... I, 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 I haven't seen a Harry Potter movie for at least a, a decade, so I haven't seen any evidence <laughs> of that. And what so they barring call, magic. Well, they, they, they basically, what they mean, when they say technology, they mean magic will solve everything. Um, so, like, and actually, there's, there's a very interesting engineer that I'm now involved with, who's an actually Australian mining engineer now working in Finland, Simon Machoa. I've pronounced his last name wrongly, but he's done brilliant work on on what what is involved in going from a fossil fuel economy to a mineral economy. Because his point is, if we're going to go from fossil fuels as the energy source to solar, then we have to use minerals to get the solar energy. And what are the what are the mineral constraints there? And they're massive. We, we don't, at the moment, the way we produce solar cells involves a lot of what are called rare earths. Not the called rare, as you know, because they're rare, but because they're, they, they're, they're amorphous. They tend to occur with other deposits, and therefore you, it's very, very hard to refine them and, and, and very wasteful. But the amount we, we need to do that shift, like there's, you know, how many million cars would there be in America? 300? 200 million cars? Okay. How many of those are electric? A couple of million? So you've got to convert, you know, 200 million cars, uh, the equivalent of that, uh, and and that's how, how many batteries do you need? How many solar cells to support them, rather than coal-fired power stations and so on? So the physical constraints are there. You can't. The difference between magic and technology is technology takes material inputs. Now, when you look at those material inputs, we don't have them, uh, and and there are various changes which can occur. So, for example, there's recent research on on batteries which use reversible rusting in iron batteries as a way of storing electric power. That might mean we can now have batteries that aren't based on rare earth, they're based on iron ore, which comes in large deposits. That's much more sustainable. I've seen there's work on you know, carbon nanotube systems for solar cells and so on, which again, but the thing is, we are only in the very beginning of developing that technology. Lithium, they take thorium nuclear reactors, which is another area which would be fabulous as a way of replacing coal-based power stations. We haven't got one yet, and it'll be a five to fifteen year development process before that's finished. Again, technology, another difference: technology and magic. Magic happens instantly. Technology takes time. So, in all these cases, if we if we'd started this fifteen twenty years ago, then there might be a possibility of that technological solution working. But we're behind the eight ball, and the only way to cope, I believe, is to drastically reduce our consumption levels. So, Your can we get there with market the... incentives? Sorry. Can we get there with market incentives or? No, no, we, it's yeah. too late, too late for the market. I mean, uh, you, there's no, you can't put a price on carbon. That's going to mean tomorrow people are going to put enough energy in developing thorium nuclear reactors. You'd bankrupt everybody else who might be able to get the thorium investment done. It's going to be government funding and it's going to be basically a war economy. That's, that's the only way. Uh, the government's the only institution which can limitlessly produce money and use that to direct what people do. And uh, it can also put controls on consumption, as we did back in the Second World War. There was rationing to mean that people, war bonds were sold not to raise money, 
to get money out of people's hands so they wouldn't be buying stockings when you wanted to be building, uh, making parachutes instead. Um, so all this stuff is, is only going to be done through a government system. And that's why, ironically, I think neoclassical economics will be the theory which brings down capitalism, not Marx. But you're, you're, you're focusing your criticism, and, and rightly so, uh, on the energy matrix and in the inability mm. of the market to create the, or for us to create the incentives for, for, to, to push towards a greener mm. uh, uh, energy matrix. But I wonder if you might comment, and to the extent that you're uh, uh, familiar with the idea of solar geoengineering and some of the other ideas that the techno-optimists might throw into this discussion mm. and say, you know, perhaps there is uh, a way for us to deflect uh, some, some of the solar energy that's being captured here. And obviously there, there's some controversy around this because it would potentially mean that we would have the disincentive to actually clean up our acts when it comes to, mm. to uh, uh, pollution. So I wonder if you might comment on that side of yeah. actual human ingenuity blocking some of, the, uh, some, some of the heat coming from the sun. Well, the first thing I'll say is we're already doing geoengineering. It's called un, 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 uncontrolled capitalism. Okay? That's already geoengineering. We're already changing. We've already done it by accident. The question is, can we do it deliberately to reverse what we've done by accident? Uh, in that case, uh, yes, there are some technologies we can do, but again, the scale is enormous. So I've seen some work, for example, of, of saying there'd be, I forget, some sort of degradable plastic balls that could be put on the surface of the Arctic to replicate the reflective power of the ice, and then you could reform the Arctic. Uh, of course, there's sulfur dioxide seeding of, of the uh, stratosphere to reflect sunlight before it comes in. That's actually probably the cheapest and technologically the easiest one to do. Growing massive kelp farms to absorb carbon out of the ocean and, and then have that as a food substitute as well. All those things are there. But the scale of it is beyond anything, any, uh, you know, it's not going to be done by a market system because the, the impact of a, a sudden collapse in our productive capacity will be such the cash flow that corporations are used to simply won't be there. So the only way you can get the cash flow is by the government printing it, which, you know, inverted commas, which is the, the war, war economy approach. And I think right. we will all be forced into it. I, I think uh, the only question is, is, is how is it going to happen? Will it be uncontrolled or will it be coordinated? And on the history of what we've done with COVID, I'm going for uncontrolled and uncoordinated and rival countries doing it and screw you attitudes if it affects your, your ecology in negative ways. We're doing it because our people are dying. Right. Like it's it's always been the case that large positive shifts in humanity come from crisis necessity change. Mm, right. It's yeah. not introspection and, and, you know, creating systems that over the long term will help us. So the yeah. question about the, the ingenuity of human beings, I remember back in the beginning of COVID where they said, look, lockdowns will only happen in China because that's a centralized economy. No democracy will ever be able to accomplish a lockdown. And yet every single democracy that I know tried their hand at it. Right. And so when mm -hmm. there's a crisis, a of successes. Yeah. Yeah. When there's a crisis yeah. and there's a necessity, there is change and, and abatement of the problem. I think one of the things that as an optimist I might take offense to is that we might not be able to solve this rationally. But when the crisis mm. comes, there is some optimism, even though COVID has not been perfect, that there was some sort of coordinated regime to manage it. 
in the same way yeah. that a, a phase shift in climate change might allow us to do as well. And it might lead to also like austerity, changing the way that people think about consumerism versus minimalism. Mm. You know, there, these are all these movements and com are coming along. It may lead to less consumption. It may lead, it, I think there's many reasons to believe that there's going to be a, a reduction in population and therefore um, mm. uh, growth in the economy. All of those things come hand in hand. People think about it as a negative impact, but it might actually ultimately be a as we get this crisis. Yeah, well, in, in a sense, I agree with you because I think, I think when in, this, this is like a criticism not of capitalism, not of neoclassical economists. It's the nature of humanity as well. That's the right. thing which distinguishes us from the other species isn't just our intelligence. It's the fact that we can share beliefs and then those beliefs right. empower us to do things which we could never do individually, but they equally, uh, they, they can generate a trend which is unsustainable, but you get positive feedback and amplifying feedback for the people at the top to keep that trend going, even though it's unsustainable. Now, yeah. once we normally in the past, that's meant things like, you know, Toyota Walken collapses and you know, Easter Island runs out of trees, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but it, this is global. Okay. And, and we, we are not going to, we're only going to react to it when we realize, holy shit, this is serious. Now, uh, holy yeah. shit, this is serious for climate change is not going to be, um, even the, the fire domes in you know, Western United States aren't enough for that. It's going to be something which kills an entire city. Yeah, something of that nature. I mean, one for example, one of my one of my uh, renewed worries is what's called the AMOC. You know, the AMOC, the Atlantic Meridional Overturning Circulation, which we otherwise know as the Gulf Stream. Okay, the Gulf Stream. Yeah. Okay. Yep. That that is a water distribution system which goes right from the Antarctic to the Arctic. But part of it that is in the, the, the northern Antarctic is called the AMOC. Uh, and that distributes heat from the equatorial regions of the, the, of the Atlantic Ocean to um, northern Europe. And it's driven both by temperature differences and salinity differences. And if you dump too much fresh water into the northern reaches of it, say, for example, melting Greenland and melting all the Arctic ice, then that breaks down the temperature difference and it... It, 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 it cools the water too much, but it also dilutes the salt, the salt level too much, and the AMOC will stop. Now, when that stops, the temperature is still being accumulated by the planet, but it's stuck in the equatorial region, and therefore there's a bigger gradient of temperature between the equatorial region and the northern region. Now, that, according to research by James Hansen and other scientists who know what they're bloody well talking about, generated superstorms. And they've got part of their evidence for that back, I think it's called the Eemian period in, in climatology, uh, were 1,000-tonne boulders strewn across some part of Ireland, which they proved ultimately wasn't done by tsunamis but by normal waves, storm waves. They're saying superstorms were a product of that temperature difference when the AMOC broke down. Now, there is recent data saying it appears to be breaking down. And what are economists tell us would be the impact of that? It's going to improve GDP, okay? <laughs> okay. Uh, 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 and I'm, I'm not joking. This is Richard Toll saying it would improve. And in a recent paper came out four or five days ago, AMOC will reduce the damages uh, because the temperature gradient will fall. Uh, if, the, if the temperature gradient drops a bit, that's fabulous. If a 1,000-tonne boulder lands on your house, that's not so crash hot. And, and the, the, they're leaving out these causal processes, reducing it all to temperature uh, without looking at the 
the temperature gradients that are going to exist, the superstorms which could occur. So I think what we need, I, I hate to say it, we need something like that to happen, a storm so big that we lose you know, a storm or a fire or some event like that that, that wipes out just a large part of a place where humans happen to live. And then in that case, holy shit, this is serious. And then the sort of changes you're talking about would be possible. But again, it's a bit like the phony war before the Germans, you know, we had Chamberlain coming back from, the, from you know, signing a document to hand over Poland to, to Hitler saying peace in our time. And you only had Churchill, not only Churchill, but one of the most important ones saying, you know, you, you've got to stop this madman, blah, blah, blah. And ultimately, you know, the invasion of France occurs and suddenly we, holy shit, this is serious. And then in that situation, people accepted all the rationing. They accepted uh, having to become a you know, volunteer for the army. Uh, they accepted everything being devoted to a war issue, which was an existential threat. We knew they were that. days away from, from the Germans taking over all of the UK, right? Like it Pardon? was, yeah. it was, they yeah. were, it was close. Were, I just yeah. lost my headphone. Go yeah. on. It was close. Yeah, like and share. I mean, uh, yeah, there were there were a few um, a few events that if they hadn't happened or they didn't happen in a different sequence, uh, Germany would have successfully invaded the UK. So, in, in existential threat tends to focus the mind, uh, but until we actually see this as an existential threat, we won't do anything about it. And when economists come out saying that a six degree increase in temperature reduce GDP by 7.9%, that's not existential. That's saying, don't worry about it, which is what humans will fall back into. And then I can see this economist saying, oh, we told you it was going to be bad. No, you didn't. You told it was going to be worth ignoring. So Jason asks an interesting question uh, about bringing up AMO and PDO and how that might change your models. Wouldn't this suggest that the last 40 years have just been a single data point? How might that affect your your current uh, hypothesis? Um, last 40 years, I don't quite follow the question. Um, I, I think... Yeah, that's why I didn't raise it because I didn't understand it either. <laughs> yeah, a bit, a bit, I bring up the AMOC and, and PDF and Pacific, uh, if, I presume. If the changes to the Gulf Stream would then sort of make meaningful changes to climate in general and the, the data points that you were drawing from before oh, yeah. no longer representative of the well, that, perspective and, and, and that's exactly the point i mean these things will completely change the nature of the climate so you simply can't use statistical relations you find in the current climate to predict what's going to happen if you shift the climate globally and mm -hmm. and this this is the problem people quite normally quite simply mistake climate for weather okay miami has a different climate to new york which is true in a geographic sense, but it doesn't have a different climate in the sense of the climate change because it's, it's, we're in a circulation system driven by a temperature level determined by roughly 280 to 300 parts per million carbon dioxide in the planet. If we go to 450, 500 and we trigger a dramatic change, so for example, one, one of the ones that I like uh, speculating about because it makes a bit more sense to people is that we have three circulation cells for uh, the atmosphere in each hemisphere of the planet. There's the Hadley cell from zero to 30 degrees north. There's the temperate zone from 30 to 60. And there's the polar zone from 60 to 90. Now, those are like if you had a, have a, a pot of, of soup on the stove and you've got the temperature at a low level and you'll get these rising and falling columns, the Bernoulli 
pattern there. If you turn the temperature up, you can change it so you go from those three to one, a totally different dynamic inside the, on the soup itself. Ditto for the human climate. Again, studies I've seen by scientists say that if anything above 5.5 degrees Celsius, which is a 10 or 11 degrees Fahrenheit increase in their models, will trigger a breakdown of the three cells into one. And that will therefore mean you get hot air rising at the Arctic at the, the, the uh, uh, equator and falling at the pole. So the average temperature of the polar region becomes 22 degrees Celsius. That's the yearly average, okay? And then in the middle, what you get is drought along with superstorms. Now, that's what climate means. That's what climate change means. Going from a climate where there are three circulation systems to just one. Going from one where the rain falls in the 30 to 60 range to where that's a desert. Those sorts of changes. Going from ones where the storms... Uh, you know, reach five on the on the cyclone scale because the amount of energy conversion is small to where it might reach seven. Uh, that's climate change. And the mistaking climate for weather is is what the economists have made into a, uh, a profession and, and, and continued fooling us to not worry about it, feeding off our own tendency to mistake the climate for the weather. So how, how might an opportunist view um, the next five to 20 years in terms of mm. positioning and maybe, maybe not framing it as opportunist, but how can people take action to manage risk effectively in oh, this type of scenario? Well, one, one, one reason I moved to Thailand apart from COVID uh, and my wife being a Thai national, which made it easy uh, is that it's you're a very short distance from the food fields here. Uh, it produces all its own food. Uh, it ex and a food exporter, and uh, it might be. I mean, I'm probably underestimating. It might be a dozen hands involved in getting the food from you know the fields into my mouth. And if I wanted to move to a country, or I could make it two or three steps, not just one. So shortening your supply chain, uh, meaning you're not relying upon global supply chains. That's that's a major element of how they, how to cope with this. And if we are forced into a world where rationing applies, then you can forget about luxury goods. Your, your market has to be on, on what is going to be necessary for the vast majority of people to survive. And that, that again, comes back to food and energy uh, and, and basic energy levels. So uh, shifting over to something which, uh, where, where you're going to need more of a particular energy source rather than less. So renewables, thorium, um, at the energy level, and then in terms of products, food, clothing, the absolute basics. Uh, nobody made money selling silk stockings in the, in the Second World War. You made money selling silk parachutes. Have you thought about other geographies? I've always thought um, upper or middle Canada, having access to water, having access to arable land. Um, and it doesn't really did suffer you change from or hurricanes. Did, did, did you change your mind after Lytton? After, well... The town, the town of Lytton burned to the ground. The, the town well, that was the West Coast, called. wasn't it? Oh, well, that's okay. But who, who cares about the Westies? Well, I'm just uh, trying to think of a, hey, listen, I'm looking for, I'm, yeah. I'm going to buy three cottages. One's going to be in Thailand. I'm thinking about somewhere in Canada because <laughs> I got that nationality. I'm just looking for confirmation yeah. here. Where else? Uh, the Amazon rainforest well, I, I, in Peru? I, 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 uh, in, in this sense, I think the, the, the changes are more violent towards the northern hemisphere, northern latitudes than the, than the middle latitudes. Uh, and more in the northern hemisphere than the southern hemisphere. So because most of the energy, uh, most of the carbon dioxide pollution, of course, happens in the north. 
um, it appears there's lots of changes happening in Antarctica, but it's so much bigger ice mass than the Arctic that it's, it's a slower process. So southern hemisphere is safer than northern. Um, I, th I think, and this is one again, rise of reason for Thailand, around the equator, even though it becomes unbearably hot, it's ridiculous how hot it is here now, uh, uh, it won't in become that much more change won't come its way, whereas there might be a six, to, like in terms of degrees Fahrenheit, six to 15 degree change in parts of the northern sections. And if that means a complete change in weather patterns that eliminate food, uh, superstorms, you know, I think northern, the northern uh, hemisphere, the northern, further north you are, the more dangerous you are. And I'd be looking for good uh, water supply as well, independent right. of the uh, climate. And on that front, from what I've been told, Uruguay ain't bad. So I think and also if we're going to replace, yeah? Yeah? replace the um, carbon as the primary source of energy too, I mean, like you said, if we're going to electrify everything, then mm. we move from a carbon economy to a mineral economy. And yeah. so it seems like mineral extraction and, and mineral um, commodities might be another area where you're yeah, going to yeah. see an acceleration in demand. Yeah, that's when I've got a lot of my, lot of my friends who are speculators are popping into copper purchases and stuff like that right now, uh, looking at elements of the periodic table that we're exploiting far too much uh, and therefore we're going to drive the prices up. But equally, one of the dangers there is that's also a reason to dig in back to the optimism thing, technologically develop a way. <clears throat> so if we start getting iron-based rather than lithium-based uh, batteries for long-term power storage, then that eliminates the lithium advantage. Not completely because you need lithium because it's so damn light. So it'll be there for car transport, but it won't necessarily be there for long-term energy storage. Not to mention the difficulties in securing uh, reserves of all these rare metals because the larger warrants are in unstable countries <clears throat> like the Congo. Yeah. And, and China's foothold in uh, uh, Africa is a clear uh, signal of, of where this might be headed. So yeah. yet another potential focal point for confrontation between uh, yeah. China and the West, which he didn't even Or cooperation, on. as they or will meet each other. Oh, Rodrigo the Optimist <clears throat> is back. I thought you were planning for Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to let that one fly. It could go both ways. There's a cone of possibilities here, guys. Yeah. The other, other possibility technologically is that uh, the emphasis in technological development is going to be on trying to find ways to do things that use largely available minerals like aluminium and iron in the place of rare earths. So technologically, I'd be looking at companies that are trying to build, you know, aluminium or iron-based alternatives for energy storage and, and uh, carbon, carbon nanotube systems for uh, solar power rather than silicon dioxide and so on, or silicon gallium arsenide. We're, we're coming up on two hours, and uh, despite Rodrigo's and partially my best efforts to try and bring some optimism, either through technological means of other, I, I, I think we failed <clears throat> at that task. So I'm wondering, in terms of your general outlook, are we, are we just headed for, for a rough few decades ahead in terms of your vision? I think it's the roughest decade since the collapse of the Roman Empire. No. This coming you imagine, could you imagine how resilient our children will be now that they're finally going to start facing some some issues? I yeah. think I've always said that I want my children to suffer as much as possible to live a fulfilling emotional life. So it will we'll create a bunch of meditators and stoics 
That's, we might that's also a silver lining on that one. People also suffering from PTSD because of the stress of trying to stay alive, uh, which is what what scared. We, we, we've had a really low, like even though we've had more, you know, all, a, a continuous wars, courtesy of America's imperialism, uh, for the last fifty or sixty years, nothing like the wars people experienced in the Middle Ages and and, and post Roman collapse as well. And you were living in the permanent states of PTSD. So I think that's also what we might be leaving to our kids. Okay, um, I'm gonna I'm gonna wrap it up because we're we're hitting the two hour mark. Um, so I wanted first of all to say thank you to Steve um, for giving us two hours of your evening. What is it? It's sneaking up on eleven and 11, eleven p.m. Eleven o'clock yeah. there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So thank you so much, and I, it's impressive that you're able to remain so energetic and articulate. Um, <laughs> at, and please at tell us where. Please let everyone know where they can find you. I know you mentioned the book that's coming out. Maybe you can remind us of the title and, and, and dates yep. and, and, and social media presence or, or, or other presence that you might think worthy mentioning. Yep. yep. Well, um, this, I'll just bring, I'll do my bit of share, screen sharing here if I can to finish off. Let's just go and do a share here. Uh, okay. So this is the title of my new book that will be coming out between October and December. This is actually, the, as you can see, the page proofs. Uh, one more editing needed and the index is still to go on. But the New Economics of Manifesto, that's uh, it'll be October to December uh, in terms of Europe to America. Uh, and social media, my main, my main source of revenue is uh, Patreon. So if people want to support me, they go to www.patreon.com slash profstevekeen. I'm trying to find one of my sites here. This is my, my website. Um, uh, and that's the article on a modern debt jubilee there. But it's a www.patreon.com slash profstevekeen. That's the main way to, to basically support my work and, and keep in touch with it. And then if you like uh, being uh, aggravated on Twitter, you can find me as pro, uh, at, at profstevekeen. Fantastic. Uh, Thank you so thanks much again, for your Steve. Time. Yeah, this has Thank been you. absolutely terrific. Um, exceeded all my, my hopes. Um, and... Um, Thanks again. By the way, please like and share. If you want us to be able to bring on guests like Steve, then we need your support and engagement. Really appreciate all the questions and comments from the peanut gallery today. Some really insightful um, ideas and questions and and directions that we were able to go in. So thanks for that. Like and share. And um, we'll have to have Steve back. Yeah, we'll have to have Steve back around too uh, in the coming months for sure. Okay, and look, I'd, I'd like to have some off-screen conversation with you guys as well about some business developments I'm doing too. Because my first meeting with you blokes, I like I like what I've uh, what I've experienced, and I'm working on some other stuff apart from climate change. You might find interesting. Fantastic. Well, stick around after the commercial. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Thanks all. all right. Okay. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time.